This episode is brought to you by Premier Ridge Capital. Your path to financial freedom and stability through multifamily syndications begins with Premier Ridge Capital. Visit our website at www.premierridgecapital.com and sign up for our newsletter and get your free ebook today. Learn the secrets of multifamily investing and how Premier Ridge Capital can be your partner in achieving financial peace of mind. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Latinos in Real Estate Investing Podcast. And today I have Brian Grimes as our guest. Brian is an Ivy League educated real estate entrepreneur. So we're going to learn a ton from him. He's supposed to be a really smart guy. Columbia graduate. Um, upon graduation from Columbia U in 2011, he embarked in a career of financial planning with AXA Advisors before transitioning to a high net worth asset management at Bridgewater Advisors. In 2015, Brian launched his own real estate development company in his hometown of Philly and since has gone to gut and renovate 300 plus rental properties across the country using the buy, renovate, uh, rent, refinance and repeat strategy. So the Burr strategy. Brian is also the founder of 24-7 Cashflow University where his stu- where students can learn how to create passive income and escape their nine to five desk jobs. He calls himself the out of town investor. He is raising a son, Brian the third, and Tomas. I don't know if you call him Tomas or Thomas. That's the Spanish in me, Brian. No, um, it's Tomas. Uh, no, it, it is Tomas. It's Tomas. Okay, I thought because it's T O Tomas. The Bronx, uh, in the yeah. Bronx, with his wife Zia Acosta Grimes. You still living in the Bronx, sir? Are you we, still? We're still. We're out in the Bronx. Area. Okay, yeah. great. Great, great. In Yonkers, yeah. Brian also likes to share in his IG profile reel, reels of rehab of the rehabbing process, which I love. I like to do that a lot as well. Brian, sir, thank you for being here today, for take, taking time on your, your busy schedule. And um, welcome to Latinos and Real Estate Investing Podcast, sir. No, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So let me go into the first question. So first, how did you get started in this game of real estate? How does an Ivy League guy right, that was um, told, right, because this is how they, they condition you in, in the university, you got to go, you're going to go get this education, you're going to go and get a great job at Bear Stearns or wherever, right, um, and make $200,000 yeah. a year with your with your fancy degree. How does that guy go into being an entrepreneur, a real estate entrepreneur? Uh, for me, I mean, both of my parents were, were definitely entrepreneurial. So growing up, I got to see them, you know, start businesses and, and be their own boss. And I wanted to to do that. Right. I always wanted to be my own boss. And I've always been one to look at lifestyle first, not money. So you could uh, look at the partners at a certain maybe like a law firm and they make a lot of money, but a lot of them are miserable and their uh, their family life is like just re- seriously lacking. So I look at lifestyle. And when I, you know, I did get railroaded into kind of that investment banking, you know, philosophy where you're going to go. Uh, but then I'm looking at the lifestyle. These guys are working 18 hour days. Uh, you you run home, take a quick shower, take a nap, drink a cup of coffee right back. And it wasn't a lifestyle that I was attracted to. So I knew that I wanted to be my own boss. I got straight into financial planning where I could create my my own way, um, eat what I kill, started off 100 percent commission. And my plan was to uh, pay myself first, take 10% at least of every commission check and just start putting it into real estate to build up passive income. I, I just knew I wanted to do that, to have that financial freedom. 
So you always wanted to, you, you always knew you wanted to be in real estate, apparently, because, I, I mean, you went into the field, the work field, and we kind of have a similar similar beginning since I started, I started, I just didn't go to college. I'd never been to college or university. I started just in sales, in the financial services sales in, in 98. So you, you kind of knew that you wanted to be in real estate from Jump Street, right? Yeah, well, I had my best friend, he got into real estate before me, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a, a year and a half older than me. And um, I can remember us hanging out in college and we go to like a local bar and he orders a couple of drinks and he just pulls out a knot of like 20s. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what is that? You know, we're I'm a broke college kid still and he's just graduated. Um, and he's like, you know, it's, it's the rent money. And he had about twenty five hundred cash. And I'm like, OK, I need to I need to uh, get into some of this. So I, I started to learn about it. And with it being my best friend, we're talking like every other day. And all of those conversations are about real estate. So we're constantly learning more, re-educating each other. And I knew it was something that, you know, as soon as I started earning, um, I wanted to put into and, and get into this buy and hold game. Hey, what year did you go to Columbia U? What year? What years did you I, go? Did I you go there? From uh, I graduated in 2011. I, I uh, landed okay. there in like 2007, 2000. Yeah. Okay, cool. You know, um, I used to. I grew up in New York City. I used to work in the there was a coffee bar across the street from columbia university right on broadway i don't know if it's still there um on 116th and broadway right on the corner there uh is that still there was that still there when you were going there when you was going there it probably was but i don't believe it is anymore. okay uh, was it there a, when you every- yeah um i used to I, I used to have a bunch of columbia students there was man i used to crush on this, this sidebar man i used to crush on this girl that used to come there this was way before i met my <laughs> wife so full disclosure babe if you're listening this is this is a couple years before we met there was this girl that used to come <laughs> there man all the time i used to just crush on her she's you know beautiful girl man um she used to go to your school anyways back in your columbia day university days um you had you your your bio says you used to play ball right you used to play basketball i'm a basketball guy too um and um what what did the sport you said that the sport taught you everything you needed to know about real estate what are some of the key learnings that you can share with our audience as to what were those things that you learned that you transitioned from basketball into what you're doing today I think, you know, for me with basketball, you know, I grew to be probably 6'5 by like 13, 14. So I was always, and I was nationally recruited. My first high school game was against LeBron. They flew us out to Akron, um, you know, to play play there in a sold-out crowd. But it taught me, like, leadership skills, how to lead, you know, uh, teams of, of other men, um, how, to, how to take risk, how to be on a team, because real estate is a team sport. Uh, ownership, I, I preach, is a solo sport. I want all my people, all my mentees to own their own operations uh, individually because it's easier to navigate. But real estate itself, especially the full gut renovation game, it's a team sport. You need a lot of people in these different positions in order to operate uh, efficiently. So I learned how to be in that team environment, how to how to uh, you know pass the pass the rock, how to share uh, the wealth, mm-hmm. and the more you can do. Uh, for the team, the stronger you will be. So I compare it to like, there are a lot of people who watch HGTV, Property Brothers. They think they're going to go out and just do it all on their own. Like, that's like the dream. I'm going to stand in the house with a tool belt and I'm going to build it. And if you come up against me, I'm still an individual. But if I have a hundred men within my organization, I'm going to eat your lunch every time. Like I'm going to beat your team. So 
it's it's just about you know that that level of uh, playing. Sports has kind of taught me that. It also teaches you adversity, delayed gratification. I mean, it teaches you everything about real estate, but also everything about life and and uh, business. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, Brian, how was that experience for you, man? Playing against LeBron? Did he dunk on you? Did you dunk on him, or what? How was that, bro? <laughs> I, I did try to dunk on. I stripped him at half court. I was pretty pretty wiry back then, so I. I stripped him at half court and tried to go down and and uh and dunk on him. He hacked, you know, he hacked me. And, uh, <laughs> I wasn't. That's the story you're going with. He hacked you. No, he did. Like I went to the line and everything. Like he. Oh, he, he fouled. He, he did. He did foul you. Okay. Yeah, he did. He he sent me to the line. But um, no, this this guy was incredible. This guy was uh, I think he had like 38, 18, and and like twelve. Like he he had a, a monster night. Um, so fast, so strong at that age. It, it was ridiculous. And we had we had three All-Americans on our team. A seven-foot center went to Vanderbilt. Six-eight lefty went to Duke, uh, who was like a small forward. And then a six-seven shooting guard went to Florida. Um, all top 50 ranked, all seniors. And he just pick, he picked us apart. Well, I mean, we only lost by like 10, but it was, it was incredible. It was truly, though, back to the team thing, it was his team. That was, uh, you know, amazing to me. His team, the way they played together, and even at that young age, to have guys that weren't jealous of LeBron, um, that would share the way that they would feed him and set him up, and he would um, pass the ball to them. They had this chemistry that was not normal for for like high school. It was just not normal. Crazy chemistry. That's awesome, man. That's 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 really impressive. So. Um, how have you taken that that and brought it to your business to get the success that you've gotten in business now? I just look for good people. I look for people who love real estate. Like I only within my organization will work with people who have that passion because when you love something, you'll learn it at a much deeper level. People who just do things for money, they don't necessarily go as far as people who are doing it for, you know, truly uh, something that they're passionate about. So I look for people who have that similarity who have good work ethic and who are team players who will sacrifice uh, for the overall organization. But, you know, with that, you have to reward people. You have to put people in a position to uh, do well. So it's, um, it's being selfless in that sense. Just, I, I find that in order to lead people, you have to be, you have to be fair. You have to be worthy of it. So um, I just try to do the right thing by everybody, you know, within the organization is just find good people that do good work and love what they do. Got it. How have, what have you found that your degree, what is your degree at Columbia? What is it? What is it? Economics. Economics. Okay. What role has your degree from an Ivy League school have played in your role in, in your role today and your success today? Has it had any impact or, or if any, what role has it had? I don't think, um, I don't think that degrees, unless you're going to be like an engineer, um, you're going to go pre-med, become a doctor, uh, or you're going to go to like law school. I don't know that the degrees, unless you're going to get into those types of uh, departments, matter much. But what does matter from your uh, college are the connections, the mentors, the relationships. And I have some of the most amazing mentors like on the planet. And those relationships have definitely shaped the way that I think about business, working with people, opportunity. I still call on a lot of my mentors to this day. And that mentorship has been like invaluable. And in many ways as well, when you're in uh, New York and and thereabout, that Columbia uh, degree is like a passport. 
So it opens doors um, where other where in, in some instances those doors wouldn't be open. Got it. Okay, so Brian, when you think about the the degree that you have at Columbia, would you advise someone that might be listening to us? You have an economic an, an economics degree, which is super valuable. I think that's super. That, that's I think that's wonderful. I love economics. You got to love it if you're in real estate, right? You got to be paying yeah. attention yeah, to all of the data yeah. and the metrics. But if someone is listening to us right now, maybe a young person is listening to us. Or anyone, it doesn't matter. They're thinking, hey, I need a degree and I want to major in real estate. I heard there was some major now in real estate. Somewhere. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I saw someone somewhere. I, I can't remember where, LinkedIn or something. They were majoring in real estate. There's some major. Anyways, and they're thinking about going back to school to be because they want to own apartments or they want to own multifamily investments, right? Um, what advice are you giving to that person? You having, you know, a degree from one of the top schools in the world and in our country, right? Columbia. What advice are you giving that person? My advice is, is still, you know, the degrees that are most powerful. Like you could have a good degree from Columbia. It's not necessarily going to make you a successful real estate investor. Um, and depending on how much debt you have to go into to get that, you have to really weigh those factors to some degree. You also have to weigh who you are. Like everybody can't just get into a, a uh, Columbia University or Ivy. There's only so many spots there. So you have to weigh what that degree can offer you versus something like trade school or um, some of these other skill sets. Like I would push somebody who says, well, maybe I'm thinking about community college or some of these um, like a state school. Maybe you should go to trade school. Maybe you should learn how to become an HVAC tech because an HVAC tech can make 150000 and a lot of the majors, if you go get a sociology degree, you might make, you might have 40,000, 50,000 earning potential and a lot of debt associated with that. So you have to weigh in uh, some of these factors. But in terms of learning real estate, if you want to learn that, what I preach is real estate is one of those things that is still in that old model. Back, if you go back a hundred years, if you wanted to become anything, you had to do an apprenticeship. You had to do an apprenticeship under a master. Mm-hmm. For pretty much anything, if you wanted to become a shoemaker, you had to go work under a shoemaker mm-hmm. and do an apprenticeship and then learn how it's done, uh, hands-on experience, and then become a, a master yourself after getting that experience. Real estate is one is an an- antiquated industry, and it is still like that. The only way to truly know how to become an investor, unless you have deep pockets and you can go burn through a quarter million dollars in the school of hard knock, get ripped off by uh, contractors overpay lenders, you need to get into some type of a mentorship program and learn from an investor. I see a lot of people take the path and say, well, I'll get my realtor's license and then I'll know how to invest in real estate. No, you'll know how to be a realtor and handle transactions. The only way to learn how to become a master investor is to do an apprenticeship or a mentorship program with another master investor. It's the the most direct path. It's also not going to put you in tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. So it's a direct path that anybody can take, uh, even if you're just like a high school graduate. Yes, yes, yes. I love I love that you're saying that. Um, you mentioned something in your statement in, in there, and you said um, that having a degree will not make you a successful real estate investor. I want you to elaborate on that. What will make you a successful real estate investor? Let's take a quick break. Before we dive back into our conversation, let me share 
something truly transformative with you. Picture this. I've personally created wealth through real estate investing, and now I want to show you exactly how I did it. Introducing the 60-Day Deal Finder, the game-changing online course designed to revolutionize your approach to real estate investing. In this dynamic program, you'll learn battle-tested strategies to uncover high-yielding opportunities, insider tips on negotiating and confidently closing deals, a step-by-step -step roadmap to help you build your real estate empire in just 60 days. And here's the kicker. I'll be revealing the exact methods that help me create wealth through real estate. But that's not all. Enroll today and get an exclusive deal just for our podcast listeners. Use the coupon code WEALTHYAF at checkout and get 20% off your purchase. Stop dreaming and start doing. Your journey to financial freedom begins with the 60-Day Deal Finder course. Head over to martinreimastery.com. That's martinreimastery.com. And let's build wealth together. Mindset, um, mindset will make you successful more than anything. You always need the mindset. So you don't want to necessarily know. Um, like I, I, I had an encounter with uh, Alan Payne. For anybody who knows, uh, like New Jack City, um, that movie. Alan Payne was like um, one of the main actors there, and he's a Philly guy. So I, I met him at a a uh, conference he was doing for Men's Health in Philly. And I walked right up to him uh, during one of the breaks. And I said, what do you read? Because I want to know what people's mindsets are. I don't want to know who, the, who they know, how they got lucky, how they got their big break. I want to know what you feed your brain and what is your mindset. And he told me, and that transformed my life in, in many ways. That's kind of like a separate story, but transformed me in many ways. But you want to know what um, how people think about real estate and mindset is and having a strong mental fortitude, not taking the first no, um, just pushing through barriers because you're going to hear no a lot when you're trying to do something different. Being able to manage money well and do asset management well, being able to um, deal with people well. I mean, there's no HR department in real estate. It's as blue collar as it gets. It's the Wild West. So when you're even if you're a, a smart person, you're working a white collar job, you're not used to how blue collar real estate is. So you could still be unsuccessful. If, if you worked at JP Morgan in investment banking, you're making a quarter million. You're still not used to the street. You're not used to it. it. There's an adjustment and there's a mindset that you need to be successful. So it's, I would say it's more mindset and um, social skills, people skills than anything that will make you uh, more successful. Um, in, in this game, because it's just it's blue collar. And a lot of people don't understand blue collar, especially people who are highly educated. They don't understand this blue collar game. So what is it you you coming from that world somewhat? Right. What is it that those that most, you know, that that executive doesn't. What is it that you find that those guys don't get about uh, the blue collar world and that you can see or maybe from your students that you see? that can set them up for a failure, not understanding, um, you know, not able to to have that those social skills and deal with those contractors. We both know how contractors will eat you alive if you don't have good systems and you don't have good good constraints in place to manage them. 
um, when you're doing a rehab. What what is it that you're finding there that they may struggle with? Um, I think initially you will struggle with being in control, with being a boss. A lot of us, we get into something, especially when you're super smart at something or you've had a lot of education. When you get into this real estate field, you feel uneducated, you feel underprepared. And your nature is to let someone else lead, hire a GC, let them lead and defer to them. And that deferral will get you burned. Making assumptions, assuming that because someone knows how to build a house, that they're a good money manager. I've managed money for millionaires, right? There's a difference between somebody who can manage money, somebody who can make money and somebody who can build a house. Those are different skill sets. All, all three of them. So you assume that this guy, because he's a GC and he can build, he can manage money. If he can manage money that well, he probably would be just building for himself, getting the loans himself, dealing with all of the stuff himself and executing at that type of a level. So putting people in the wrong position because you're not uh, willing to expand your comfort zone. So the first thing you have to do is learn how to control the money, control labor, control money, be the boss and take control uh, of a project. And most people don't learn that. And so they get burned for money by, by a GC. And then they say, well, if I'm going to keep doing this, I better become the GC and start to understand this game and, uh, and figure this thing out. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of that. It's a lot of a deferral, um, lacking confidence and not wanting to be the boss in real estate. You have to be the boss and he who pays everybody, he or she is the boss. We see a, a lot of, uh, you know, women will come into the, the real estate game, too, and just not want to be the boss or they won't think they think that uh, people won't respect them. Men won't respect me because I'm a woman. They won't listen to me. So they try to hide belief. behind the GC. They get. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, a, it's a wrong belief that they will respect whoever pays, whoever pays the money and is controlling the systems will get the respect because that's just the kind of game it is. It's a. It's an eat what you kill week to week type of payment game. So when you're the money and you're not happy, they know they're not going to get paid. It, it, it starts to set different power dynamics and, uh, and proper structure where you're in control. And that will protect you more than anything from getting burned. Got it. I, I want to just elude a little bit to what you said. You know, um, my project manager, I have, I have a couple of project managers. My lead project manager is a lady. Right. She has a construction background. She used to. And um, that was one of the things that she used to struggle with. She's an amazing project manager. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things she used to struggle with when she first came on my team was that, oh, that this one. Well, it, it was true. It was true because I had, you know, when she came on, it was a little disruptive to some of the contractors that we had at the time. And they had a little bit of a hard time uh, reporting to her. Um, but, man, she she quickly uh, leveraged like, hey, man. We, you know, I'm the one that gives okay for those checks to get written every Friday. <laughs> so exactly. let's get in line here without my okay. No, no checks get written. And she, she found a way to leverage it. So what you're saying is so powerful, man. Like what you're saying, you said three things and I missed one. You said there's three different skills. There's managing money, there's making money. And what was the third skill? Those are three separate skills. And, and like building, building houses. Okay, and, and building, like, yep. It, you can't assume that because somebody can build, because somebody can build with their hands, that they are magically a good money manager. See, here's the thing that I learned over the course of time. You get burned. My, everybody knows my first deal, I got burned for 40 grand by, by a contractor. Tell us about and that. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, how it works, it's, it's called the contractor game. 
So the contractor game is like this. It's all a test. Everything is a test. And and this is how a lot of people get burned uh, going to blue collar. A contractor will come to you. They will set up a, a schedule and say, here, we're going to it's going to be fifty thousand dollars for the project. The contractor game is is deep. So the first level is to give you a bid that's unbelievable. So they're going to tell you they can get a hundred thousand dollar project done for 50K. That's part one of the game. Once they lock you in mentally to this is going to cost 50K, you will not want to wake up in a reality where this project does not cost 50K because you're running all your numbers around 50K. Mm -hmm. If it costs 100, the deal gets blown. So you lose 50 grand, right? So now they got you because you have to buy into this false reality. Now they're going to set up a draw schedule. 25% draws. I want 12,500 every two weeks will be done in eight weeks. They're going to, and I need 20, 25% up front. So you give them 25% up front. They're already ahead of the money now. They're going to go two weeks. Now they're going to come up with stories about how it's going to cost more. They need another draw. Now mm-hmm. they're 50% into the money and they've gotten 10% of the work done. Then they're going to tell you they need the next third to get you through or, they, or the project's not going to move. And before you know it, they're going with the money. The reason they can do that is because you don't want to wake up in the reality where they're full of it and they and now you don't have anybody who can get it done at 50k because it, everybody else is coming in saying it's a hundred thousand dollar project mm-hmm. so that is the contractor game in a nutshell and how you will get burned for money uh by some of these guys i want to know i want to know what, what strategies have you deployed to leverage them yeah i mean what i've learned is a lot of these guys aren't malicious. The guy, the guys who run that contractor game are malicious. But there are a lot of GCs out there that aren't malicious. They're just bad money managers. They're not good with their own money. They will just live paycheck to paycheck. Spend if they got twenty grand tomorrow, they would still spend it in two weeks because they don't. That's just how they are. They just mismanage money. So you shouldn't be giving them the money to mismanage to begin with. So some of the systems that you'll put in place to correct that is. Systems where you're paying the direct cost of labor, you're buying the materials instead of them. Let them put together a materials list. Let them go to Home Depot and pull the materials and you do a phone sale and then have those materials shifted um, to the project uh, site. Like, But start to control the money. Never get into a situation where uh, you're putting out 25% up front and then hoping that they manage the money correctly. So the biggest systems are buying materials directly, paying labor by the week or, or, or tracking it by the day, by the task, starting to educate yourself. One thing we, we do for all of my projects, one of the biggest systems is just having boots on the ground, having a third party that inspects the work of the contractor. And they don't even need to know that much is, is the shocking uh, point. You can get a college kid who is just working for beer money, $15 a site visit, send them to the site round robin, Three times a week. This week, they go Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Next week, they go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They show up at different times of the day. The contractors never know when they're going to show up. And they just show up with a smartphone. They just put a phone on them. And they know, the contractors know, you're behind the phone. <laughs> like, they know. Mm-hmm. You're behind it. So now it's a physical representation of you on the site. And what that will do is keep everybody on their toes, speed up the work because they know you're coming and they don't know when you're coming. And um, it will it will give you true visuals of the work that's being done because contractors, like if I go in a house, I could go into a shell 
right now or a really rundown property and I can send you 10 pictures that makes this place look livable. I'll get the perfect angles, cut out all the bad stuff and you'll be like, hey, I could move in tomorrow. And contractors know how to do this as well, how to do what we call show work. Make it look like, oh, the framing is looking great and this, that, and send you two pictures. Oh, I, I forgot to take a, a few photos. I'll get them to you tomorrow. And then they never show up. You need an independent third party to be going to this property. Even if they don't know what good work looks like, you could take those videos and send them to somebody like me who's done 300 uh, full gut jobs, who can educate you and then tell you, no, they're trying to burn you and catch that before you're 40K in the hole or 30K in the hole. We could catch it when you're $300 in the hole and say, mm -hmm. no, you need to pull the plug. Don't send the money. Tell him he needs to get X, Y, Z done. Um, or, or they're overcharging you on materials. But you have to be the one tracking this stuff. You can't give up that power. You can't give up the money. Do not give up the bag. That is like how you know you're about to get burned is you're just giving up the money and hoping that they're going to do the right thing. Yeah, I, I love I love the college kid strategy, Brian. I really like that. We use we use a software called Builder Trend. I don't know if you're familiar with Builder Trend. Have you ever heard I of it? I know Builder Trend. Yeah, yeah, we we use yeah, I, I, I program. Yeah, so we use that to keep them accountable. One thing that we use here, um, <laughs> because of all of the times I've gotten burnt in the past, one of the things we do here is like, hey, here's a detailed scope. Here's this uh, all of the duties that you have to do. We pay on Fridays. When you do one, two, three, four, five, six, you get paid. If we always, so in other words, we pay you, and we do it in four draws. You do this, yeah. you get paid. You reach here, you get paid. If if you tell me you're done, if you call us and you're like, hey, we're done, and they have to update pictures every single day into Builder Trend so we can look. If you tell yeah. us, hey, we're done, right, we always have 30 to 40% in the back. If you tell us, yeah. hey, we're done, which you are probably experiences, we're done, and you go there, and you're like, what the hell are you talking about? You got you got four more days here, right? Yeah. Right. Um, if you tell us we're done and we get there and you are not done, we're charging you a hundred dollar trip fee that's coming off the back. You're yeah. done when the punch list is done. So we yeah. this way we always we're always ahead. I bring him, I usually bring him into my well, my project manager does this now. But what we do is we bring him into our conference room when we're bringing in a new contract and we say, Hey, this is how we work. You want to work with us? We're one of the biggest rehabbers in the area. We are the biggest rehabber in the area. You wanna work with us? Here's our rules. I'm a pig. I like, I want quality, I want speed, and I want time. I want it all. I want the best price, I want the best quality, and I want time. Why do you want to give that to me? Because I'm the guy that's going to keep you busy all year round. This is the rules. This is how I pay. You want it? If you if you have any objections to any of this, we can shake hands and you can walk out right now. Like, literally, I just we just lay it on the line with them. Like, hey, this is how we're going to do. Your upside is we're going to keep you and your guys busy. You're going to eat. And we manage the money. Because like you said, just because you're a good construction person, you're not a good money manager. You may not pay your guys. Your guys may not show up to work. Dude, I've been there, man. <laughs> been there like we, where, we're getting, where we're getting killed. Brian, what has been one of, the, one of the biggest lessons that you have learned in your years, right, doing over 300 rehabs? Um, your biggest lessons you have learned um, as an investor doing these types of construction uh, one, you make money on the purchase, mm -hmm. make money on the buy. And two, there's no such thing as a cosmetic rehab. That's just for TV. You know, it's just, it's just for TV. It doesn't exist. 
so if you go into these cities like the ones we're in, these these cities were built in the 1910s, 1915s, if not earlier. These properties are 100 years old. They all mm-hmm. need full gut innovation. So the the people who think they're going to get in and just do a, a quick rehab and uh, make some money, they usually lose because you pull back the wrong wall. You see, oh, the bricks are shifted and uh, we're going to have to blow this whole wall out, reframe re, uh, it back up. And you just go over budget every time. So you make money on the purchase by you, you'll make more money in this game, focusing on properties that need full gut renovation and just focusing on those. Uh, the ones that people are afraid of, the ones with a hole in the roof and um, the joists are, are bad, but the structure is good. And you can buy those at a price point where there's a developer spread, where there's a three, four hundred thousand dollar spread between what you're buying the property at and the after repair value, the ARV. And, you know, you can get in there with a couple hundred thousand a dollar renovation and not a lot's going to go wrong with a couple hundred K on your typical row home in New York, Philly, Boston, uh, Baltimore, Delaware. It's like not that much is going to go wrong. You're pretty much going to be able to get in and out and, and produce a profit. So it's about picking the right deals, putting those in the funnel, having good lending partners, but just understanding there aren't you're not going to scale on cosmetic renovations. You're just not because these properties, they need work. They need a lot of work. They need rewires. They need new plumbing. You know, these things got cast iron plumbing behind those walls that are going to crack, leak everywhere. And the last thing you want is for that to happen while you have tenants in it. The best thing to do is to just get it right now. Then you can set it and forget it, collect your cash flow. you know, for the next 50 years. I got, I got another question for you. So, your bio says you buy in C and D class neighborhoods. Is that correct? I don't, I haven't really quantified like what a D class is, but definitely in a C class, definitely, definitely uh, in blighted neighborhoods. Um, you know, I'll, I'll buy an A and B class as well if it's a good deal, but I like to buy on the cusp of gentrification. So if I see gentrification happening, where, which, where does gentrification happen in the C class? <laughs> like it happens yep, yep. in the hood. Mm-hmm. When there's a turnaround and that's where all the money is made is being able to get into those pockets before they turn around, um, being able to buy a shell for 30 grand. And then in three, four years, that property that you put a hundred K into, it's worth 250, 275. That's how multimillionaires are born and how you can get in at a low cost. So I buy um, not in gentrific- gentrified areas necessarily, but outside of them, a half mile outside. So I, I track basically the trends of where the development is happening and where it's pushing, and I'll try to get in front of it. So I can buy cheap, do my full gut renovation. I can pull comps from a half mile away and ride the value of the comps that are being created and then um, and keep building out massive portfolios. The C-class is beautiful because it's a blank canvas. So you have, like, let's say if I wanted to go into the A-class neighborhood, scale and operation, the the real estate is more expensive and there's less inventory naturally because it's a class there's less vacancy less blight so i can't get the economy of scale that i can necessarily get in a c class i could go buy 50 properties within a zip code all next to each other i could throw a football from this one hit the other one and run crews straight through them and get an economy of scale within that pocket and a blank canvas of shells that all need uh work and, and um partner with lenders who will buy in so yeah, I love the C class. I think uh, those communities need it the most. 
Uh, the contractors come from those communities. So you can hire locally, um, create opportunity for the people that are there and restore these neighborhoods, restore the pride. So that's what I, I like to focus on from a, a mission standpoint. I like that. Um, can you share a little bit on how you underwrite and how you anticipate? So what are some of the, just for our listeners, you don't have to give us your full, I'm sure it's going to be detailed, but just give us a 50,000 for you, one, two, three things I do. Yeah. One is, is basic market research, um, understanding that in every good neighborhood, there's a bad pocket and every bad neighborhood, there's a good pocket. So being able to find those good pockets within the bad neighborhoods and then buy in and around them. Just doing basic market research that could be, you know, bigger pockets, blogs. Uh, for for me, it's I'm boots on the ground in a lot of these areas, and I grew up in a C class neighborhood in Philly, so I'm from these areas. So it's very easy for me to identify. Mm-hmm. Um, two would be value. So I've been through, you know, literally a thousand appraisals. Um, so I know how to think like an appraiser. I know what comps they'll pull. So I know how to go out a half a mile and say, oh, they're going to pull this one, this one, and this one. And this is now going to be worth three hundred and seventy five thousand, even though most people can't see that because I have that experience. So pulling value and then drawing on my experience of what it costs to renovate properties, because I've done over three hundred full gut renovations in the last five to seven years. I know what it costs generally to full gut renovate pretty much anything based on square footage, current condition. So putting that knowledge together, I can back into a deal. I can find a good pocket in a rougher neighborhood that's on the outskirts of gentrification, where the development is pushing, I can see the exact value that it's going to have. And then everything is a derivative of the after repair value. So I can back my way down um, 65% of the ARV, which is what a a hard money lender will give you, the rehab budget, boom. And now I know the offer range. And if I can get that deal within that offer range, I'm making money on the purchase. Once I buy it there, I'll build it here. I'll be in that hard money loan and I'll have 35% equity that I could either, either flip or do a cash out refinance on. Bert, yeah. Um, what are you finding that is working for you? Once you identify these neighborhoods, how are you getting them? Are you hiring a VA team to cold call for you? Are you doing mailers? Are you door knocking? So we're doing everything, but I also work with like all of the above, but I also work, um, you know, with a network of wholesalers because I've been doing this for so long. I'm on every wholesalers list as well. Mm-hmm. So every, what I've learned in this game, a big, a major key is everybody's not a middleman. So you can get, and, and you scale the operation as well. As we scale, we start looking at everybody as middlemen. We're like, oh, I'm going to cut them out. I'll do the property management myself. I'll do this myself. I'll do mm-hmm. that myself. Not everybody's a middleman. So a wholesaler who will go out, grind, get a deal under contract and flip it to me for an 8K markup. And then I go make 80 grand off of it. Is that really a middleman? All day long. Leverage? All day long. <laughs> like, just, All day long. I'll do that. Cut yeah. him out. Mm-hmm. You keep bringing the deal. So I, I work with, with that. But another thing to keep in mind, I get I'm getting deals for 20 to 30 cents on a dollar off of an MLS because my acquisitions um, systems are so fast to the deal. The best deals go on and off the market in 24 to 48 hours. So I have systems that can get to a deal, analyze it within the first 10 hours of it being on market. And I can get an offer out, get it locked up before you like in day one. And that's how we get these deals so quickly. 90% of the inventory to ever hit that's moved in the US comes from the MLS. Mm-hmm. So if you only focused on wholesale, you would only be looking at 10% of the deals. 
Mm. No matter what, that's only 10% of the market. So you have to have a great strategy with the MLS in order to, um, at least from what I'm doing, to win in, in this game. And this is this is a game that is accessible for the average person who's just starting off with 20, 30K um, saved and wants to kind of get into this game and scale a portfolio. My last question to you. Um, actually, I got two questions. So before I go into what are you seeing in the market, I know that you buy in Baltimore. That's one of that you buy in a lot of blue cities, um, heavily, you know, liberal cities, which is fine. It's just, as we both yeah. know, in those cities, as an investor, a lot of those cities are not investor friendly when it comes to rentals, right? When it comes to, yeah. you know, evictions, you know, we, we, we prove that with eviction moratoriums. What is your experience? I know you own some properties in, in Baltimore. I, I, my partner, one of my business partners, lives in in dc so we we've looked at that market we actually have an offer right now in that market on a 63 unit and i want to know what is your experience like working in those neighborhoods what systems do you put in place to protect yourself as an investor from someone staying in your property or not paying you for years on out as is like in la right now it's insanity man what's happening there with yeah they're just expanding and expanding eviction. The COVID eviction moratorium is just stupid. It's just like it's bad for business, yet we still have to pay taxes, insurance, and all of that. So what is your property management team if you third-party it or your property management team? What are you guys doing to leverage that? Bad city with a with a couple of bad decisions, and we all get bad tenants eventually. It's not if. It's it's when, right? We, we yeah. Someone goes bad, right? It just happens. Um. So in a, in a place like Baltimore, like really, I would say the two worst – places to be a landlord are probably probably New York and LA. And nothing's worse than than those two places. Nothing's mm -hmm. worse than LA in terms of like the difficulty to get somebody out through a through a legitimate eviction process. Philly's pretty easy. I've gotten evictions done in 45 days. Baltimore is also relatively simple. Where people run into mistakes is not being compliant. So there are there are a lot of licenses you have to have rental licenses, lead inspection licenses. Um, you have to be registered in annual registrations. Uh, you have to be registered. And this is all Baltimore with like the, the EPA. And you have to have all your paperwork together. And most people don't. So they start they wait uh, until this person goes delinquent and then they start trying to get their paperwork together, which adds more time to the process. Uh, so the number one thing you can do to protect yourself is have your, have your game tight, have your game together. This is where most of us fail. Most people will tell you the horror story. It took me 12 months to get somebody out. It was all the city. It was a, what they'll never tell you is they didn't have their paperwork together. That is 90, 99% of the time. If I sit them down and say, did you have your rental license? Did you have your lead license? Did you? It's no, no, no. Didn't know I needed that. But they'll never tell you that in the story, in the horror story, because that would be accountability. So once you have that together, you need a tight system. Rent's due on the first. It's late by the sixth. You got five day grace period. You get a 10 day pay or quit. If I don't have it by the 16th, I'm filing. Nobody does that. They wait 30 days. Then they hear the sob story. Then they wait another 30 days. Then they file. And that extends the time. So running a tight ship also helps. And I got that from like my property management company. Um, also, you know, I had a tenant who, who, who went like a, a while through the moratorium, like we're talking about. So when a moratorium kicks in, then what do you do? You have to sit tight. 
Baltimore was actually really good with the with the uh, landlord assistance. So I had a tenant go a year, no payment. Hit up Baltimore, got a check for fourteen thousand from the from the government. They covered all of the rent for all of the delinquency. Nice. So you have to also understand that game because when you're in these blue cities, it goes both ways. They will protect the tenants, but when that government money comes, you have to have the wherewithal to go apply to know how to get to that government money to be made whole. And a lot of people don't know how to apply or won't go through the process. I went through the process. We got the check cut. I mean, it's phenomenal. So you get a whole recovery of all the past due rent. So um, you have to play the system as, as best you can. But you, this is all, all of these things are having your game tight, right? Knowing how to apply for the landlord assistance, having your paperwork together, or you can't even apply for the assistance if you don't have your rental licenses and all these things. And then running a tight ship being able to do that. But also a, a fourth level is like you do with your contractors. I do the same thing, by the way, with, with my people before I hire them, but I do it with my tenants too. Hey, we uh, we run a tight ship here. If you're not your type of person that won't pay your rent, we evict fast. It's doing the first, is this, is it. And that will scare people off. That's why we're saying it. That's why you're saying it to the guys before mm -hmm. you hire them, because mm -hmm. you're trying to scare away the bad people. Mm -hmm. Do it with your tenants too. That's a part of underwriting. Mm -hmm. People don't do that. People are more than just their credit score. You have to test people. You have to ask these questions and you have to level set before you put a tenant in your property and you will eliminate a lot of your nightmare situations. So I, I do a lot of underwriting on tenants that goes way beyond credit score because in C-class, everybody got bad credit. It doesn't matter. You have to underwrite people, not you know these different spreadsheets. So- yeah, there, there's a lot that goes into it. That's beautiful, man. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your your wisdom and your knowledge here, brother. Now I want to. I just want to shift it over to the market, man. So here we are, 2023. Um, what are your thoughts? You know, a lot of uh, a lot of the talking heads, a lot of economists are are talking about recession. I personally believe that the history will tell us that we've been in a recession since last year. Since uh, we have been. Third, second to third quarter of last year, 2022. Um, but the talking heads and they say, no, it's not. So I'd like to get your thought on the current state of the economy. What are you seeing and what strategies are you deploying? Because one of the ones that get, you know, as we know, A class goes to B class during recessions. B class go down to C class, right? Employment, unemployment goes up. Um, unemployment is ticked up, I think, 0.2%. Over the last couple months, I think uh, real estate in general. So when we try to give a overview of the real estate market, if you watch the news, they're going to tell you nationally, oh, everything's going like bad. And they're going to give you this national overview because it's it's clickbaity and they're trying to reach out to the broad masses. The reality is real estate is micro local. So the Northeast is very well positioned to be rock solid because affordability within the Northeast is fine. If I look at California, um, there, there's this multiple effect of the median earned income of the average American within an area. So let's say if, if that's 50K uh, is the median earned income in California for the average American and the housing for a starter home is like 20X that you know, it's a million bucks for a starter home. That's bubble territory. It's unaffordable for the average American that can't stand. So the pricing, you know, has a lot of uh, room to go down. Whereas in the Northeast, 
the starter homes, 300,000 is still in that six, seven X range. It's fine. It's not in bubble territory. You're not going to see massive pullbacks in pricing in some of these uh, different things. So you have to know where you're investing and what's going on there. We are in recession. We have been. The good thing about recessions for us as buy and hold investors, one, pricing will stabilize, maybe tick down a little bit, five, 10 percent. Nothing that's going to kill you in the burst strategy. But there has not been a recession in U.S. history where the Fed has not reduced interest rates on the way out. There hasn't been one. And this isn't going to be the one. So rates are already projected to start to tick down. They, In fact, they have been. Rates peaked the 30 year. Uh, on 30-year mortgages yeah. in September, right? Mm-hmm. So they've been coming back down, and they will continue to come back down. They're projected to continue to fall into 2024, 2025. So this opens you up to a strategy as a buy-and-hold investor to start looking at um, arms, annual renewable mortgages that will have lower rates or some of the rate buy-down strategies, the three ones, the two-one rate buy-down strategies that didn't make sense when rates were pretty much at their bottom, but they do make sense when rates are projected to go shift and be in fluctuation within like the next three to four years. So you can play the game and get deals and then plan for a refinance in two to three years. Um, It's not a bad strategy. In terms of building, like where our economy will be, I, I don't see, I don't see housing taking the fall that is being projected. I think prices are actually going to be relatively stable uh, for for a variety of reasons. And we're going to have a window of opportunity because rates are going to fall again going into 2024, sometime later this year. And pricing is going to go back up, right? Once rates go down, buyers are going to come back in to start locking in lower rates, assuming they could go back up. And pricing is going to stay stable or go uh, up again, which means there's a window of opportunity to get into the game and buy something as prices are falling because they're not going to fall 40%, not in the Northeast or not, not in Philly, not in Connecticut, mm-hmm. not in uh, Baltimore, not in New York. You, they're just not. So you have to get that out of your head. In terms of strategy, I do workforce housing. I do affordable housing. So I'm kind of like a durable good during recessions. It's like mm-hmm. people are choosing me and my, my housing. So I do something called co-living in C-class neighborhoods where I will take a starter home, a three bed, one bath and bust it down into a shell, rebuild it into three master suites and then rent out the master suites individually. Um, So I can take a starter home that will rent for 1200 a month and produce 2250 a month out of that same property, out of that same footprint. So uh, my strategy is creating this affordable workforce housing for the millions of Americans who are living on their parents' couch or in the basement. And that demand is insatiable. And how I will track that is March 2020, the peak of the pandemic, everything shutting down. We think it's airborne. I tenanted over 100 co-living units between March and June of 2020. Beautiful. The demand is insatiable. Didn't even want to leave, leave the house. And they were jumping into these uh, units like hotcakes because it's hard to find affordable rents in a major city. So if you learn how to build co-living and workforce housing and affordable housing, you'll always, you know, make millions of dollars doing that. And you'll always have tenants in demand, especially during times like recessions, when things are getting hard, people start choosing that cheaper alternative. I love it, brother. I, I really do, man, because I that's my that's my lane, too. And I always talk about it in this podcast. And I'm, that's what I 
that's what I preach. I like to, my lenders like it that I work in that space. I provide, I go by the three C's, cash flow, right? Clean. And uh, I like clean, safe, and cash flow, right? That's what I provide. Yeah. I provide quality homes for an affordable. And I, and that's my, that's my space too, the workforce. Cause I come from there, right? I'm, I come from born and raised in New York city, come from, come from the hood and I want to provide. And not everyone that's poor is bad. Not everyone that that's working at Walmart just means that they can't, they don't pay their rent. My, now, my mom's had an apartment for 35 years, never been laid on her rent. She's always paid her rent. It keeps the place immaculate. And that doesn't mean because we were poor, we were bad, right? Or we were bad. Yeah. So I, I, I'm with you, man. Thank you so much for coming out, brother. You've been uh, a gem, man, giving us all your wisdom and all your knowledge. I really appreciate it. We're about to go into the untitled round here where we're going to ask you a series of questions. You don't have to think. You don't have to uh, explain yourself. Just one word answers. You ready? Ready to play? Let's do it. All right, brother. Here we go. The best part of being in real estate is? Cash flow. Basketball is? Life. Money is? The root of all evil. <laughs> I, can't, I can't live without? Family. Never underestimate the power of? Meditation. If I could go anywhere right now, I would go to? A Sixers game. <laughs> Family or business? Family. Passion or stability? Passion. Angry tenants or angry co-workers? Give me the angry tenants. <laughs> Words or action? Actions. Poor and happy or rich and miserable? Poor and happy. Watch basketball or play basketball? These days, I w I'd rather watch. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome, brother. Thank you so much for being such a great sport. And if I know we talked, you mentioned multiple times during this during this conversation, um, you know, people you coach, mentor, and some of your programs. If people wanted to get a hold of you, someone wanted to connect with you, learn from you, get into your community, how do they go about that, sir? So there's a few ways to find me. One is on YouTube. Brian loves cash flow, and that's easy to remember because I love cash flow. So Brian loves cash flow on YouTube. Instagram, Brian Grimes underscore 247 CFU for the 247 Cash Flow University. Uh, on TikTok at Grimes Estate, at Grimes Estate on TikTok. You can uh, Google Brian Grimes Explains um, and you'll find me. You can go on LinkedIn, Brian Grimes Real Estate. And all of these uh, different platforms backlink to my free training that'll show you how to acquire properties for pennies on a dollar all across the country on www.workwithgrimes.com forward slash cash flow, workwithgrimes.com forward slash cash flow. Once again, that free training will show you how to acquire properties for pennies on a dollar all across the country. You don't want to miss out on that free offer. Thank you, sir. And we'll have all of this on the show notes, brother. Again, thank you for coming out. And guys, reach out to Brian if you want to connect with him. It's going to be all in the show notes. Again, Brian, thank you again, sir. And we'll see you next time. And that wraps up another episode of Wealthy AF brought to you by Premier Ridge Capital, where multifamily real estate syndications meet premier success. Your future starts here. Visit us at premierridgecapital.com for more details.